Our New Testament reading comes from Matthew 12, verse 38 through 50. It begins on page 817 of your Bible. The signs of Jonah. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they, will re for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came to the ends, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless place, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Wouldn't you hope it's, it's good to be with you this morning? And like Josh had mentioned, if this is your first time here, um, it's a great time uh, to be at Wouldn't You Hope because we do have the, the Marty party to celebrate Reformation Day um, immediately uh, after the service. Or actually, it should say almost immediately after the service because we also have, it should be very quick, um, a quick congregational meeting should be about five minutes for the purpose of re-electing um, uh, Fred Skiff and Josh Super as, as elders here at One Ancient Hope. So we're going to do that right afterwards. So please don't forget about that. But in celebrating Reformation Day, we're reminded of the importance of, of Scripture. And today we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And so before we turn to Scripture... Let us turn before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what your word does. We thank you for the way that you use your word powerfully in the life of the church through your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that it's through your word that the church is what the church is and that the church can look forward to what you will make the church. And we realize, Lord, that all of this is founded upon the message of your word that we find in the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to that intention. And it's in Christ's name that we pray in the belief and the assurance of the power of the Spirit. Amen. So looking at today's passage, I, I want to do so under three headings. I want to look at three things. Demanding the sign, rejecting the sign, and receiving the sign. And so we're going to look at each of those in turn and start with demanding the sign. As we just read, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus, and what they do is make a very interesting, a very surprising request. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And this is surprising. 
Because Jesus has performed healing after healing after healing. He's cast out demons. He's taught the scriptures with incomparable authority and clarity. Yet despite all of this, they still seek a sign. And Jesus does not mince words in his response. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So how are we to understand this? Again, Jesus has already performed sign after sign after sign. And would it be wrong to seek these signs out? Would it be wrong to ponder these signs? No, that, that's not the problem. The problem here is the way in which the sign is sought. The very request, it dismisses everything that Jesus has already done. It dismisses them as not sufficient signs to prove that he is the Messiah. And so we're left to wonder, what exactly do the Pharisees have in mind here? What more do they want to see? They've already seen demons cast out. They've seen a withered hand healed. They've seen a young girl come back to life. What more could the Pharisees want? Theologian Peter Lightheart, he, he points out that this request actually puts the Pharisees in the very same place as, as Satan when Satan is attempting to tempt Christ in the wilderness. If you really are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you really are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. If you really are the Son of God, then prove it by performing some trick that I will lay out. I'll set the terms, and you will meet them. The Pharisees, like Satan before them, they're telling God what God needs to do in order to have credibility. They're telling God how to be God. And this is indicative of something deeper. When we ask for a sign, we're asking God to be a kind of errand boy, a kind of assistant, a kind of butler. Perhaps in our own hearts, we even find ourselves thinking, God, if you just get me this job, then I would know that you are real and I can trust you. God, if you just gave me romance, then I would know that you are real and I could trust you. God, if you just solved this health issue, then I would know that you are real and I could trust you. God, if you just made my kids behave like the kids from that other family, then I would know that you are real and I could trust you. God, if you just gave me what I most wanted, then I would know that you are real and that I could trust you. And all of these things are very good things. As we've said many times before, sin is not wanting a bad thing. Strictly speaking, there are no bad things because God has made all of creation good. But sin is loving some truly good thing in creation more than God himself, who just is the greatest good of all. Jobs and marriage and good health and family, these are all very good things. When we seek them, we seek good things. But none of them is the greatest good. Sin is loving a lesser good as the greatest good. Sin is a deficient mode of loving, of acting, 
of being. And so when we demand a sign, we are treating the very greatest good of all, God himself, like a butler, like a mere means to get some lesser good. It's like asking to use a priceless vase as a stepping stool so that you can sort of stand on it and reach up and grab a Frisbee that's stuck in a tree. Who cares about this vase if I can't have my Frisbee? That's the logic. And who cares about God if he can't get me the things that I want? God is just a stepping stool to stand on to grab something better and something higher. Who cares about God if he won't perform the signs that I want God to perform? And so we desire God, but we desire God as a means to get something else. Remember that Jesus calls asking for a sign here both evil and adulterous, and we can see why it's evil because, again, this is the very thing that Satan does, but why would it be adulterous? Well, it's this dynamic of disordered loves that enables us to understand Jesus' rebuke here. Throughout the Old Testament, God describes himself as the groom of Israel and Israel as his bride. However, Israel again and again and again runs after other suitors. Israel proves itself unfaithful by giving her heart to pagan gods. Israel seeks the good gift of rain, but does so by seeking Baal, the god of the storm. Israel seeks the good gift of crops and healthy children, but does so by, by seeking Asherah, the goddess of fertility. These are good gifts, rain and fertility, but so much does Israel desire them that they reject the one true God. And they give their hearts to these false gods who they believe will give them these things, and so they are adulterous. They're unfaithful. They reject God as their bridegroom and run into the arms of idols. And we too are like this. When we request a sign, we display the same basic logic. These gods had become associated with good things in creation that Israel rightly sought. But the problem was not seeking rain and fertility and the good gifts of food and family that come with that. The problem is seeking these lesser goods as the very greatest good because what we most seek, what we most desire, what we most love, well, that's what we worship. Worshiping Baal is simply making explicit what was already implicit in the way that Israel sought rain. Worshiping Asherah was simply making explicit what was already implicit in the way that Israel sought full fields and full families. They loved these good gifts above all else, and so they were already worshiping them. Whether or not they bowed down before some idol, in this sense, at least Israel and their unfaithfulness, they were more aware than us that we are worshiping something other than God. And this is exactly what the Pharisees do when they request a sign. They're asking God to prove himself by giving them something that they want more than God. And so they are adulterous. They're like a spouse who simply married the other spouse for money or status or position 
rather than for the actual love of that spouse. They're unfaithful to God, their groom, because they've run after other gods in their hearts. And perhaps to the Pharisees' Pharisees' surprise, they have become pagans. And Jesus reinforces this by telling the religious leaders, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Think about the implications here. If Christ will give them the sign of Jonah, if Christ is a type of Jonah, then the Pharisees themselves are being cast as Ninevites. If Christ is Jonah, then they are no longer Israel, the bride of God, but they're Assyria, just another pagan people seeking after false gods. And that brings us to our second point, rejecting the sign. We'll return to the the particularities of the sign of Jonah, but to set the stage, let's look at this curious parable that Jesus tells us about demons. And it's important to note that commentators generally don't see this as giving a special insight into the activity of demons, but instead it's a commentary of what is happening here. Remember that Jesus ends this illustration with the conclusion, in the last state of the person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this evil generation. We get here a kind of parable in which someone is in a harder, in a worse place than they were before. The image Jesus gives us is demons leaving and coming back to an empty and well-cleaned house. And bringing other demons with it, they all take up residence in this newly ordered abode. But what is Jesus saying here, and and why would he tell this parable immediately after speaking about the sign of Jonah? Well, remember, in the passage, Jesus tells us that the sign of Jonah is a great sign. It's greater than the actual Jonah who came to Nineveh, so much so that the Ninevites who received Jonah will actually rise up in judgment against those who demand a sign from Jesus. Jesus also tells us that he is greater than Solomon, so much so that the queen of Sheba, who traveled all the way to Jerusalem to see and hear firsthand the wisdom of Solomon, she will rise up in judgment against those who demand a sign from Jesus. Jesus is telling them that something amazing is happening, and he points to people in the Old Testament who sought out God in response to much lesser signs. And so Jesus is calling the crowd to account. But what is the sign of Jonah? Well, to begin with, it's the answer to the outcry of the Ninevites to whom Jonah preaches God's judgment. Jonah tells the Ninevites that they are guilty before God for all that they have done. And taking this message to heart, the king of Nineveh exclaims, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The sign of Jonah is an answer to the question of whether God will relent from his fierce anger against the acts of Nineveh or if there is such a thing, or or if we will perish. 
The sign of Jonah is essentially the answer to the question, can God forgive us for what we have done, or is our only option to perish? And at the most basic level, this means that this sign can only be received if we do believe that we are, in fact, perishing. To ignore or reject the sign of Jonah is to take a firm stance that we are not perishing. This sign can make no claim upon us. Again, if it's answering the question of if our only option is perishing, well, to take it seriously, we have to believe that we ourselves are, in fact, perishing. And this suggests, as Jesus suggests in the parable about the demon, that the sign of Jonah confronts and changes the state of the person. We cannot be the same before and after we confront this sign. And let, let me illustrate this with an extended analogy. Not long ago, I was watching a documentary about the, the vast variety of colors in nature and nature and the many ways the animals and plants employ them. And the host, who, who's an excellent British nationalist, he made a surprising statement at one point. He was walking through an English meadow and speaking of the beautiful flowers that are ripe with colors, colors that met him at every twist and turn. And while he was admiring them, he said something along the following lines. The colors of these flowers, while beautiful, are not for us. These colors are for the bees. And so, yes, we might enjoy the colors, but the colors have come to be what they are without any thought of human perception or appreciation or adoration. The fact that they are pleasing to us is simply a mere coincidence because what the flowers are for and only for is to attract bees. And as the bees fly from flower to flower, the flowers find themselves pollinated. These colors might move us, they might even stop us in our tracks, but these colors are not for us. In fact, the colors of the flowers, they don't actually stand in any meaningful relationship to us. The fact that we find the flowers beautiful is an accidental effect of their attracting bees. And so to say the least, the flowers, they, they can't make any claim upon us. We're certainly not called to stop and appreciate their beauty. We have no responsibility to these colors. And whether we adore them or cringe at them, well, it really makes no difference. To say that the colors of the flower are not for us, of course, well, that's it's not a scientific statement. It's a, it's a teleological, a metaphysical, even a theological statement. So then compare that statement with another equally metaphysical position, that of the 20th century theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. He says that the beautiful colors that we see in the trees they need human perception to reach their full completion and full perfection. It's only when these colors are perceived and appreciated by a human intellect that they're able to achieve and to fulfill their whole purpose. If the colors are not adored in this way, then they have fallen short of at least one thing that they are for. Without someone to appreciate them, the colors of the trees are not complete. They have not come into full bloom. They remain unfinished. 
And of course, the, the same would apply for the colors of flowers. So then, are the colors of the flowers for us? And you can't decide this scientifically. Science can answer many important questions, but this simply is not a scientific question. You must, must decide if the beautiful colors of the flowers make a claim upon you. And as you decide, you will go through a decision process that will change your posture to the world. If the colors are only for the bees, then like the British naturalist, you must wrestle through the question of whether there is any purpose in the world beyond the utilitarian structure of survival. The flowers are only doing what they need to do in order to survive. They're attracting bees for the mere sake of pollination. The fact that we find the colors beautiful as humans is a mere fluke of nature. Humanly speaking, the colors don't really mean anything. And so, going through that process, a certain disposition has been taken to the world. And in refusing to see the beauty as a sign of anything more than a mere evolutionary accident, we've assumed a posture to reality. It's a posture in which the beautiful colors of nature make no claim at all upon us. And based on your evaluation of reality, the last state of that person is either better or worse than the first. However, if as Baltazar contends, the flowers do actually make a claim upon us, then this demands a much different posture to the world. If these colors have been made by God himself to, among other purposes, be adored and appreciated by humans, then I am obligated to recognize and delight in these colors. In fact, they need humans just as much as they need bees to accomplish their God-given purpose. They need both the insects and us to fully bloom. In this case, they're a sign. They're a sign of the creator. They're a sign of the deep web of being that God has created. And they're a sign that the creator is, is generous because their beauty in the eyes of humans is no mere utility but the gracious and gratuitous gift of vibrant color. And based on your evaluation of reality, the last state of the person is either better or worse than the first. Again, you can't decide between these two positions scientifically. This is not a scientific question. But as you, as you decide which way to respond to the flowers, you must take a particular posture toward the world. Are the colors only for the bees, or are they for both us and the bees? In answer the, answering this question, we must take a stand on which kind of universe we actually live in. And the last state will be different than the first. How is this like the sign of Jonah? Well, it's similar because the sign of Jonah forces you to make a decision, to take a stand, to assume a posture. Again, the sign of Jonah can only be received if you actually believe that you are perishing. But if you're not perishing, if you're doing okay, if you're doing well enough, if things are good as they now are, well, then this sign isn't for you. Come on. I'm not a Ninevite, for goodness sake. The colors of the flowers are for the bees, and the sign of Jonah is for other people. It's not for me. 
But whatever you decide, the sign itself forces the issue. Are the flowers for you? Are you actually perishing? We might answer with an adamant no, but to insist that we are not perishing just is to take a stand on the question. The sign is rejected, and this rejection cannot help but change us, and so to leave us in a different state. To insist that we are not perishing is, as Christ describes, to go through the process of cleaning and sweeping and putting our house in order. It's to assert that everything is okay and no more cleaning is necessary. My life is already neatly put together and I'm doing fine. To clean your house, to clean yourself in this way is by necessity to take a harder posture toward the sign of Jonah, to the suggestion that you are perishing. You've confronted the claim, you've taken inventory of your life, and you have rejected it. You've hardened yourself to the suggestion that something might be wrong with you that's beyond your powers of self-help, that's beyond your powers of self-cleaning. And by Christ's light, this means that your present state is worse than your first. In rejecting the sign, you have made yourself a more hospitable place to all that is opposed to Christ. The flowers are for the bees, and the sign of Jonah is for the Ninevites, not for a reasonably put, reasonably put together person like myself. Not me. Come on, look at my life. I'm a Pharisee, I'm a religious leader. Not me. I am related to Jesus. I am his mother, or I am one of his brothers. I'm a professional. I have multiple degrees from the most respected institutions. Not me. All of my children are on their way to Ivy League institutions. Not me. I'm just an average, unassuming person that does their best to let bygones be bygones. Not me. Yes, I've committed crimes, but I've already paid my debt to society, and I've done my time. Thanks, but no thanks. Just like the question about the flowers, the question about the sign of Jonah is not a scientific question. But like before, it is a question on which we must take a stand. Here now in this sermon, you are confronted with the sign of Jonah, and you can either soften or harden your heart to the claim that you are perishing. But you can't remain indifferent. To try to do so is already to decide against it, to dismiss it. There is no neutrality here. But how is it that we are perishing? Again, the logic of sin is loving some lesser good as our greatest good. And in doing so, we are turning away from God. We are turning away from the very source of life. It's to turn away from the one who sustains us each and every second of our existence. If you turn away from the fire on a frigid night, you will get cold. If you turn away from food on an empty stomach, you will starve. If you turn away from light, in a dark room, you will not see. And if you turn away from God, the very source of your life, that is, if you sin, you will die. Perishing, death, is the natural consequence of sin. 
that most unnatural of actions. But how do we know that we are perishing? Because we are clinging to things that are perishing. Ask yourself, what is that lesser good that you seek most of all? Is it career? Well, at best, one day you will retire and you will be forgotten. Is it your physical appearance? As you age, the attention that you once received will be lavished on others. Is it your family? One day, and, and, and I say this with, with trepidation, but we will be forced to say goodbye to each of these beloved persons, or they will be forced to say goodbye to us. Is it your health? Every day your body is decaying, and one day you yourself will perish as your body breaks down in death. The ancient African Bishop Augustine tells us that we cannot be truly happy if what we love most can be taken away. And all of these things will be taken away. They will all perish, and our hearts and lives will perish with them if they are our God. Again, we must decide which universe we live in. If the colors of the flowers are only for the bees, if the sign of Jonah isn't for me, then we live in a world where everything is ultimately meant to perish. We live in a world where the last word is death. But the sign of Jonah makes us ask, is this really the last word? And might the sign of Jonah, just like the colors of the flowers, actually be an invitation into something greater? And that brings us to our third and final point, receiving the sign. As Christ tells us about the sign of Jonah, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We have turned away from God, from the very source of life, but here we find an amazing truth. Here we find the greatest sign of all, that God himself has become human in Jesus Christ, and despite Christ's perfect life of love for God and neighbor, he himself perished on the cross. Christ perished. His body was laid in the tomb and his human soul descended to the place of the dead. And Christ, like Jonah in the sea, was there in the earth for three days and three nights. We bear the consequences for having turned away from God, but Christ has taken these consequences upon himself. Christ died, Christ perished, but after three days, Christ rose again. And Christ was resurrected never again to die or to perish. Again, the sign of Jonah is the answer to the question, must we perish? Is there another way? And it is the answer because the sign of Jonah is God taking human death upon himself and conquering it in Jesus Christ. It is the sign of God overcoming the problem of death. As Paul writes in response to this sign, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sign of Jonah is the sign of God's defeat of death in Jesus Christ. 
But again, this can only be received if we, in fact, believe that we are perishing. We must believe that the sign of Jonah is actually for us. Do you feel that death is wrong? Do you feel that the universe in its present state is inhospitable to the deepest longings of your heart? If the colors of the flowers are only for the bees and we are only for the mere purpose of survival and genetic propagation, then why would we bear this sense that something isn't right with the universe? Perhaps we have the universe all wrong. Perhaps we are meant to one day rise again with Christ into a world without death or perishing. A world where we can enjoy the good gifts of creation forever, and most importantly, where we can know and love God in the sweetest and fullest communion. Perhaps the colors of the flowers really are for you. Perhaps the sign of Jonah really is for you. Perhaps you are meant for a joy so deep that even the worst suffering here, a suffering you know isn't right, even if you can't explain why this is so, Perhaps even this suffering will, will pale in comparison to the happiness that you will one day experience. This is the sign of Jonah. Christ has taken death upon himself to conquer death. And if you place your faith in him, in this reality, which is Christ's present, well, then this is your absolute and certain future. And now that you are confronted with the sign of Jonah, you must choose, and your first state will not be the same as your last. When confronted with Jesus, with the sign of Jonah, with the God-man, we must take a stand, and this will change us. As C.S. Lewis writes, you must make your choice. You can shut up Jesus as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We must make a choice, and our first state, our last state, will not be the same as our first. And even now, if we receive Jesus as the God-man, if we receive the sign of Jonah, we will actually come to enjoy this present world even more. Perhaps you've had the experience of, of placing a huge amount of stress on the holidays. You, you do everything you can to maximize quality time with family and friends. You, you decorate each corner of the house. You make the most elaborate cooking spreads. But you put so much weight and pressure on the holiday that you actually find that you enjoy it less than your average weekend with friends and family. All that emphasis that you've put on the holiday, everything you've expected from it, things that a mere holiday can never do, all of this actually keeps you from enjoying it. In the same way, when our greatest love rests in God because we have hope in the sign of Jonah, we don't expect lesser goods to do what they were never meant to do. And so we actually end up enjoying them more. 
We don't expect our careers to provide a happiness and personal fulfillment that they can never bring. We don't expect a good food and drink to satisfy our every craving. We don't expect marriage and romance to meet our every longing for love and embrace. And because we don't make these good gifts bear the weight of our whole existence, we find that we love them rightly and actually enjoy them more. The irony is that you can only truly enjoy these things when they are not what you seek most. When they're not your God, when they're not the sign that you demand that God use to prove himself to you. Yes, this is a great job, but it's not my savior. And so if I don't find myself completely fulfilled by my work, it doesn't mean I need to change careers. It only means that my career is a career and not my God. Yes, this is a great spouse, but he or she is not my savior. And so if I don't find myself completely fulfilled by my spouse, it doesn't mean that I need a change and I need to find a new partner. It only means that my spouse is a spouse and not my God. Yes, this is a great meal, but it's not my savior. It's only food and drink. It's not God. And to be sure, all of these goods will one day perish. And one day we will perish too. But like Christ, if our faith is in him, we too will rise again. As the poet George Herbert has said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. This is the sign of Jonah. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the sign of Jonah. Lord, help us to know more deeply that we are perishing. But with that, help us to know more deeply the good and gracious gift that you give us in the gospel. Help us to receive it more fully and completely. And help the hope of the sign of Jonah fill our hearts with the great joy and happiness that you've called us to that now we taste in part. But one day, we will drink in full. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.